Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Listening to KSEF, a digital broadcast in Topeka, brought to you by 785 Magazine. Learn more at 785live.com. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Ah, thank you, my girl. Thank you very much. And hello, everybody. Welcome once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 785 Live. Um, it is a pleasure that I have every Sunday to come to you to talk about the works of William Shakespeare. I come to you every Sunday on the 8th. I want to thank KSEF for giving me this opportunity. As I said, my name is Shannon Riley. I am not a Shakespearean scholar. I want to say that up front. I am somebody who happens to really love the works of William Shakespeare. Love to talk about it. Love to read about him. And I like sharing what I think about Shakespeare ad nauseum sometimes. And today, we've been working through all of Shakespeare's plays in order, or roughly in the order in which they're written. And we're into a kind of a gray area here as we get into the early 1600s, because there's some plays in here that we just really don't know when they were written. And it gets a little bit tricky in terms of figuring out what play goes where. Now, one of the things that scholars use to really determine exactly where a play ends up in the history of his canon happens to be really the evolution of his writing. And we have a very different Shakespeare coming now. He's no longer that struggling young artist who's trying to figure out how to be a poet. He's uh, no longer that now newly successful poet who is uh, selling out crowds simply because of the name William Shakespeare. Even better, he is now a gentleman. He is a man very comfortable in his place, and his writing changes in that regard. For instance, we're talking about a man who is now a member of the King's Men. We have a whole new person on the throne. Queen Elizabeth has passed away, and she has been replaced by King James I of England. And King James is a very odd dude to begin with. He's, he's Scottish, big believer in witches, a little bit of a pompous ass, to be honest with you. But then again, I don't know how you get to be king without being that. But one of the first things he does as king is to take the Lord Chamberlain's men and name them the King's men, the personal artists of the king. This is a major, major step. Not only is Shakespeare now a gentleman, he's even gotten his own coat of arms for his father before his father dies. He is a man of means and wealth. And he's now a member of the King's men. They even get him scarlet material to make a coat out of. You know, I mentioned this before in passing a couple of other episodes, but the Elizabethans and Jacobeans, and we're now into the Jacobean period of Shakespeare's writing, 
They were very particular about what colors people could wear. Only certain colors could be worn by nobility, and those colors were reserved for them. Coat of scarlet, that scarlet material, is for gentlemen only. It's funny because the many acting companies, not only Shakespeare's company, but many of the companies that were working at the time, had extravagant costumes. Many of them were given to them by their lord who was their patron, protected them like the Lord Chamberlain or the Lord Strange's Man or ad infinitum. So these gowns were very rich, they were very well embroidered, they were very important, and they could use them in their shows to denote someone was a lord or someone was a, a king. These clothes could not be worn in the street. They even passed a law to keep actors from walking around the street in costume where they could be confused for nobility. Class was everything to the Elizabethan and the Jacobeans, and the same could be true here, said here, for Mr. William Shakespeare. Class was very important to Mr. Shakespeare. And now, he was a man who was a gentleman, and it changes his writing. He no longer is just looking for a play to suit his needs, a comedy or a drama or a history. He now wants to say something with his work, and his work really does change and evolve as he becomes a Jacobean writer. Having said that, that place is the next two plays I'm going to be talking about in a very weird place, because we're not certain when they were written. It's possible that they were written as early as 1598. It's possible that they were written as late as 1608. But whatever, whenever they were done, makes a big difference to the canon and the nature of Mr. Shakespeare. Today's play is incredibly difficult. Today's play is called All's Well That Ends Well. It's a title that a lot of people know, but I don't think they really know the play. And in all honesty, I had to go back and refresh my memory of All's Well That Ends Well because it's not one of those plays that's very commonly produced. In fact, there's no record of it ever being produced in Shakespeare's time. It must have been. It was picked up and published in the first folio in 1623. But that's the only time it was published, so there's no previous record of it. And this is what makes All's Well That Ends Well a very difficult play. Because as I describe it here today, this is a play that is beneath Mr. Shakespeare. This is a play that, in my opinion, is beneath Mr. Shakespeare. Now, there could be a big reason for that, which I'm going to talk about on the other side. But first, there is some value to All's Well That Ends Well, even though it's one of the least produced plays even today. The first record of it ever being produced, as a matter of fact, wasn't until the 1700s. It was like 1741, I believe. It was the first time they ever found a record of it even being produced. And even today, it's one of those few plays. But it's because of what the plot line was. But it did introduce something that I'm going to talk about, which is kind of naughty. And Shakespeare reuses this plot device again in a later play called Measure for Measure. And that's the plot device of a bed trick. But we're going to talk about the bed trick in a moment. But as I get into All's Well That Ends Well, there are a few really nice quotes that come out of this play. And that calls upon my boy Finn to introduce... And now, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. That's right, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. There's a couple of good ones in here. This is not one of Shakespeare's most quotable plays, but I do like some of these a great deal. Uh, Lord LeFou, as a matter of fact, in Act 1, Scene 1, has a really great quote about grief. He says, Moderate lamentation is a right of the dead. Excessive grief is an enemy of the living. There's also a great quote from the Countess in Act 1, Scene 1, advice to her young son heading off 
to the king's court. Love all, trust few, do wrong to none. Words to live by. Lavash has a great quote in Act 1, Scene 3. If men could be contented to be what they are, there were no fear in marriage. There's another line about marriage by Paralis, who's in Act 2, Scene 3, and it's not as nice. It's, a young man married is a man that's marred. And another great quote, no legacy is so rich as honesty. Mariana, Act 3, Scene 5. And finally, there's this quote that is used a lot, and I've, I've heard it used in movies and books, and I love this quote. It's from a first lord. It's called the first lord in Act 4, Scene 3, and he says... The web of our life is of a mingled yarn, good and ill together. Which is a great quote. All right, so we're off to talk about this play, which was, of course, not one of Shakespeare's greatest plays. All's Well That Ends Well, first of all, takes place in France. And in Act One, we're at this French provincial court, where a widow countess is bidding farewell to her son, Bertrand. Bertrand's very young here. He's about 17, 18 years old. His father has died and his mother decides to send him off to the court of the French king where he can learn how to become a knight and learn how to be a gentleman, feeling that without a male role model at home, he will never uh, become what he is destined to become. Bertrand is anxious to get out of here. He's anxious to go to the French court, and he's anxious to see a bigger world out in front of him. Now, living with Bertrand and his mother in this countess's uh, court is a young woman by the name of Helen. She's sometimes referred to as Helena. Helen is the daughter of a very prominent and brilliant physician. But that physician died. And since she was a child, she's come to live with the countess since the countess was dear friends of the physician. And she's raised her pretty much as her own daughter. In fact, Bertrand kind of sees her as a sister. But that's not how Helen sees Bertrand. Helen is madly in love with Bertrand, begs him not to go, expresses her love in hopes that they can be together. And in Bertrand's form, he simply says he has no interest in her, and he packs up and heads off for France. Now in Act 2, Helen convinces the Countess to allow her to go after Bertrand to the French court because she thinks she can help the French king. Turns out that the French king himself is also dying, and no one has been able to help him. Helen approaches the French king and says, I'll tell you what, I think I can heal you. I learned a lot from my father, who was a great physician. The king refuses her offer, says no one can help him, and certainly not a woman, even if she is the daughter of such a great physician. So she makes a deal with him. She says, I'll tell you what, if you let me treat you and you die, I will be put to death. But if I succeed in healing you, you must allow me to marry the man of my choice in your court. The king thinks, all right, what have I got to lose? And he turns himself over to Helen, who immediately starts to take care of him and heals the king. After he's better, he says, all right, choose whoever you want to marry. And of course, she chooses young Bertram. Bertram has no interest in this marriage and absolutely refuses to do it, but is commanded to see through the wedding by the king. After the marriage ceremony, though, he runs away from her and joins the wars in Italy with his friend Paralis. Now in Act 3, Bertrand writes to Helen, and he says, I will not acknowledge our marriage. I have no interest in our marriage whatsoever. The only way I will recognize our marriage is if you, somehow, are able to come to me wearing my ring and bearing my child. Until that happens, we have no marriage. Helen, depressed, returns to the Countess's court, but is determined to somehow get Bertrand back. Eventually, she decides to dress in 
disguise as a pilgrim and heads off to follow Bertram to Florence. While in Florence, Bertram gets quite a reputation for himself as a, well, a better of virgins. He seems to enjoy being the first one to bed these young girls. And this reputation is well-deserved. His friend Paralis, who's kind of a fop, encourages him to continue on his wicked ways, and the two of them are kind of the terror of Florence young women. Now, Bertrand casts his eyes upon a young virgin by the name of Diana, and he falls madly infatuated with her. Shakespeare makes it sound like love, but it's nothing more than lust, and he really wants to bed Diana. Meanwhile, Helen arrives in Florence and befriends Diana and her mother, and the two of them come up with a plot. At the same time, the other soldiers serving with Bertram, by the way, tell him that his friend Paralis is a coward and untrustworthy, and to prove it to him, they all, in disguise, kidnap him, blindfold him, and threaten to torture him as the enemy unless he tells them and gives up all of his friends and where they're stationed. Paralis immediately does this, proving he is indeed a great coward to Bertrand. But... When he is released, he says, of course I am. I never pretended to be a hero, and I don't feel bad about who I am. It's a very interesting character. Anyway, we get to Act 4. And in Act 4, Diana plots to help Helen fulfill Bertram's impossible request for his marriage. Diana insists on meeting with Bertram, but it must be in the dark. In disguise, Helen goes in Diana's place, and during the night, Bertram gives Helen, who he thinks is Diana, his ring, and they go to bed together and they conceive a child. Now in Act 5, Helen takes off. She makes it look like she's dead, and she disappears for a while. Bertrand, realizing that now he is free of this horrible marriage he never won in the first place, returns to his mother and intends to marry now a Count's lovely daughter. LeFou is someone who we've seen throughout the whole play, and LeFou wants him to marry his daughter. But before that wedding can take place, Diana shows up and says, This man seduced me, and I have this ring to prove it. Well, immediately LeFou refuses to allow him to marry his daughter and leaves. The King of France is very angry at Diana and threatens her with prison until who should walk in but a very pregnant Hella, who backs up his entire story and produces the ring that Bertrand had from his family. Bertrand, seeing that she is wearing the ring and is, indeed, great with his child, decides, you know what, I love you and I should marry you. And all's well that ends well, they get married. And that's the story of All's Well That Ends Well. But it is not a great story, and it's awkward. The, the, the very ending where Bertrand decides he will indeed marry, stay married to Helen and start a life together is so sudden, so fast from his previous dialogue that it's almost impossible that Shakespeare wrote such an unconvincing scene. Well, maybe he didn't. We're going to talk about the story behind the story right after this break. So come right back and you'll hear more about Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com.
Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75 Live. I'm Shannon Riley and today we're talking about All's Well That Ends Well, a play that could have been written in the early 1600s, probably around 1605 to 1608, I think. Um, it is definitely a play that was written in the Jacobean era. It is certainly a departure from his other comedies. It's, in a way, Shakespeare's attempt to combine a folk tale and turn it into something for the stage. Now, this was something that was being done a lot during that period, so that's why a lot of scholars believe that this was written in the early 1600s. Taking folk tales, particularly from Europe, was something that was very common and uh, normal to do for the stage, and this one is based on an old Italian folk tale. What's really startling about this is the bed trick that is put into the play by Shakespeare. It's not in the original story. And this bed trick, which was not something Shakespeare invented, it appeared in other works, but it's Shakespeare seemed to really modify the bed trick and make it his own. In fact, he repeats it again in Measure for Measure. So what is that bed trick? Well, a bed trick, as it's referred to, is a plot device in traditional folklore. And in this, the, the person who goes to bed with someone thinks they're going to bed with someone else. And the sexual congress that happens between the two of them is really a mistaken congress, particularly on the part of at least one of them. In this case, is Bertrand. Going to bed with someone who's mistaken to be somebody else and then having sex with them is, well, non-consensual at the very least. And Shakespeare uses this in this play and in Measure for Measure. And it gets used a lot, particularly in the Renaissance. You see it done over and over again. Now, the story, which was taken from an old Italian story, the Baccaracio, I'm going to say that, I just said that all wrong, I'm sure, in it is a story of a young man who was kind of selfish and petty. And Shakespeare uses this for Bertrand. Bertrand is incredibly petty. Now, if you think about it, here's the other side of Romeo. Romeo, a 17, 18-year-old boy, who falls madly in love with Juliet over an impetuous weekend, could have been played by a saucy little kid. And that's what Bertrand is. He's 16, 17 years old. He's snotty. He's rude. He's rude to his mother. He's rude to everybody around him. And he is out for only himself. A lot of people, a lot of scholars anyway, tend to think of Bertrand as Shakespeare's anti-Romeo. It was his way of writing a character he thought that was on the other side of that adolescence. That time in our life when we are completely about ourselves. And that's all we care about, is ourselves. This is the character of Bertrand. He's not a likable guy at all. And yet here is Helen, who is madly in love with him. And this is what causes our big trouble with this show. These are not really likable people. Even Helen is a stalker. She follows this man who rebuffs her first to the king's court, then to Florence, and then runs off after a night with him to make sure that she's pregnant and shows up pregnant and ready to claim him as her husband again. This is really an obsessed young lady, obsessed with Bertram. And Bertram, his transformation is so darn fast that it doesn't make any sense. He expressed with bitterness throughout the entire play Helen's attempt at being with him. He hates the marriage. He runs away from the marriage. And he doesn't return to his mother's house until he's certain that Helen is dead. Then when she shows up alive, shows up pregnant and alive, he immediately says, oh, well, now I love you. What? Come on, Shakespeare. That can't possibly be how you meant this play to go. 
Now, scholars have argued about whether this is a drama or a comedy. It's obviously Shakespeare wrote a comedy. And so a lot of critics have said it's important to play Bertram funny, dismissive. And it's really hard to read him that way. And it's very hard to believe at the very end of this play that all's well did end well, particularly when the transformation is so fast. So let's talk about that. Let's remember that Shakespeare died in 1616. And when he died, his plays were scattered all across England. In fact, you could argue that most of his plays burned up on a horrible fire that burned down the globe. The globe caught fire during a production of one of Shakespeare's plays, they believe, in 1613. It burned to the ground. And underneath this stage, a place that was called Hell, is believed to be where most of the manuscripts and the papers would have been stored from Shakespeare's entire career. So if any written element was left of Shakespeare's playwriting, he could have very easily seen it burn up in 1613. He retires right afterwards. He returns to Stratford, says I'll never write again. He does, of course, but he's very unhappy. So when he dies in 1616, he must have believed his work would die with him. He would be forgotten. It was because of two guys... Hemings and Condal, very good actor friends of his, who spent seven years finding all of his plays and putting them together for the first folio in 1623. This first folio was believed to be the collected works of William Shakespeare. Although by the third folio, they had found more plays to include, which is a topic for another story. In any case, All's Well That Ends Well is put into that first folio. It is printed in that folio. But was it complete? A lot of scholars, and I'm not one of them, I'm not a scholar, but a lot of scholars believe the play is incomplete. Surely Shakespeare meant for more from Bertrand. And it's possible that they're right. I sure hope so. Because the ending of this play, although All's Well does end well, does not end right. Bertrand is still a swarmy little guy. Helen is still obsessed, and I don't trust either one of them. The only one you can trust is Perales, who admits he's an absolute horrible person. <laughs> so I have this problem with All's Well That Ends Well, as does most people who read All's Well That Ends Well, which is why it's seldom produced. It's a very difficult character to play, Bertram. He's not likable. He's mischievous. And his transformation at the end is far from believable. So I kind of stay in that same corner and think, you know what? I bet this isn't complete. Now, Oswald at Enswell is considered one of those problem plays. And I've mentioned the problem plays before and what that term means. A problem play is a play that by our modern standards, or our modern way of thinking, the plays have a difficult way to, ex to be expressed. We don't quite follow them the way we would any other play. Now, there are a lot of different plays that have been called problem plays in Shakespeare's canon. The three biggest ones are All's Well That Ends Well, Measure for Measure, and Troilus and Cressida. Some people include The Winter's Tale, Timons of Athens, The Merchant of Venice, simply because our society has grown beyond where these plays were written. My cardinal rule, as always, is remember when these plays were written. Shakespeare was not writing to our modern sensibilities. He was not writing to us from our awoke sense of virtue and nature. So his idea of a bed trick is just funny. It's funny. 
Bertrand goes to bed with Helen doesn't know it and impregnates her, <laughs> thinking that he is indeed taking the virginity of Diana. It's funny to him. Whereas a modern audience sitting there and watching this play take place and coming to that scene have got to think, well, this is creepy. This is, this is massively creepy. It's massively creepy reading it. So Oswald and Enswell truly is one of those problem plays where we don't quite understand or feel the same way Shakespeare's audiences felt when they saw it. Again, the question is, did they see it? It was never published. Was that because they wanted to hang on to it because they were performing it multiple times? Why doesn't any record of it being performed exist? We usually find something, one, maybe two. We find some record of the play having been produced. But there's no record, all's well that ends well, being produced. So is it possible Shakespeare's audiences never even saw it? And that it was collected by his friends after his death and included simply because it had Shakespeare's name on it. But not because it was necessarily a great play. They just wanted everything gathered. They wanted everything put in one place. They wanted William Shakespeare's name to live on because they believed he was a magnificent writer. And he was, no doubt about it. But All's Well That Ends Well is not a great play. And I say that with all love to Mr. Shakespeare. This is not a great play. It's very hard to like any of the characters in this other than Diana's mother or even the Countess herself who is absolutely long-suffering dealing with a boy like Bertrand. So the question really remains is, do we have the complete play? And we'll never know. If it was never published, it's very likely that there wasn't another version for the gentleman to pull and use. They may even, Condos and Hemmings, known that the play was not quite complete, but they included it anyway. It's one of those mysteries of William Shakespeare that will never really truly understand the full story of it. I will say this, the play is a challenge to really good actors. If you've got a company out there that wants to prove itself, this is a challenge to make Bertrand a lovable character. In a lot of ways, he's considered this um, great acting challenge that some great performers have tried to take on to bring Bertrand Moore to life. Unfortunately, he's so young, and it's hard to find an actor of the right age to play that character, to really bring out his impetuousness, his youthfulness. And maybe in that youthfulness, you can almost forgive him, because weren't we all terrible teens? Bertrand has a friend that I mentioned before. He's kind of a clothes horse, and his name is Perales. And he's kind of a filthy officer. Some people have even played him as rather foppish or even homosexual. And so there's a great case of gender role reversal that happens here. You have Perales maybe encouraging Bertrand's behavior simply because he himself wants to bed Bertram. Shakespeare's attempt to try and express gender roles is really another piece that's in this play because he does this more and more in his later life. His plays cross into those questions of sexuality and in measure for measure, even into forcible rape. So you get into this place where uh, Shakespeare himself is trying to make a statement about the life and times and gender roles that he is living in. And finally, the happy ending aspect to this play it's got to have a happy ending. We've got to believe that all's well that ends well. And in order to do that, you got to find some love for Bertrand. And we got to find some pity for Helena. Somewhere along the line, they deserve each other. 
and we want to leave the theater feeling glad that they have found each other. But there is the delightful role of the Countess herself, the mother of Bertrand. George Bernard Shaw said it was the most beautiful old woman's part ever written. And she is smart. She's funny. She's engaging. She is filled with wisdom. It is a great role. And for that, it's worth kind of seeing this play, just to see how this woman is played. I myself have only ever seen the play done once. I have one film version of it that I've watched, and i got to say I find it totally uninspiring. But nevertheless, it is considered one of Shakespeare's later works, but a lesser work, even by any other standard. There is no critic that I've come across that has claimed this to be a great play. And it's startling to me, because it's coming at his richest time. Right after his richest time, he's just finished Hamlet. He's about to write plays like King Lear and Othello. And to tell you the truth, I'm going to talk about this in a couple of uh, episodes, but I think Measure for Measure is one of the most underrated, wonderful plays out there. And it's written around in the same period, using again this bed trick that is kind of creepy. But nevertheless, it is a great play. This one, not so much. But don't let me spoil it for you. You decide for yourself. Try to see a production of All's Well That Ends Well. I believe there's a couple of versions of it out there on YouTube or floating around on the interweb somewhere. So check it out and see what you feel about All's Well That Ends Well. Did it end well after all? I'm Shannon Riley, and you've been listening to Shannon Shakespeare Shunday right here on KSEF. As I go forward into this summer, we're going to be hitting on some of Shakespeare's biggest plays, and I just wanted to give you a really brief wind-up here in the arts scene in Topeka. We are picking up. Theater is happening again. People are out. People are experiencing live theater, dance, and various other events. Support the arts in your hometown, everybody. Get out there and take a bite of things that we could not enjoy for a year. It's a great joy to finally be opening back up again. And if by any chance anyone listening has not gotten the vaccine yet, please reconsider. It's very important that we put all of this behind us. I want to thank you all for listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. I'm Shannon Riley. And until next week, please keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye. <laughs>